0: Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Ivanaen. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Jaz Miller about the curious little microbial ecosystems that live in small holes and glaciers around the world. Jazz tells us about how these so-called cryoconate holes help us understand the evolution of plants and animals hundreds of millions of years ago, and how versatile and cold microbes can actually be. They also share some pretty crazy stories about working in Antarctica, and how we need to be aware of how our actions impact the indigenous communities living in polar regions around the world. This was a truly fascinating episode, and I learned so much from Jazz this week. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Dr. Jazz Miller, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bristol. Welcome, Jazz. How's it going?
1: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm good, thank you.
0: I'm so excited to have you here. Before we start, could you give a brief overview of your scientific background and what it is that you do?
1: I'm a microbiologist who works on organisms living in extreme or stressful conditions and for the last six years or so I've been working on organisms that live in polar environments, particularly on ice and glaciers.
0: That's amazing. So what exactly are we going to be talking about today?
1: We're going to be talking about some particular hotspots of biodiversity on a glacier surface. Some people might think that an ice surface in the Arctic or the Antarctic wouldn't have much living on it, but you might be surprised. And some of the particular habitats that are interesting include ponds, streams, ice surface itself and cryoconite holes, which are hotspots of biodiversity, little pockets of sediment on the ice.
0: Great. Before we got in contact, I had never heard of a cryoconite hole. And now that I've done a little bit of reading just to do some research before this podcast, I'm fascinated by these things and I have so many questions about them. So, could you first define what a cryoconite hole is and describe what we would find inside one?
1: Yeah, sure. So, cryoconite comes from Greek, cryo is cold, and the conite comes from the Greek term for dust. So it means cold dust, which sounds a bit like something from a Philip Pullman, his Dark (laughs) Materials book. But they've been talked about since the late 1800s, mostly because explorers kept sticking their boots in them (laughs) because they're depressions in the ice surface. They form when sediment and sticky microorganisms, particularly cyanobacteria, the photosynthetic microorganisms, they sort of have these clumps of dark material this sediment and cell aggregates and because it's a darker color it absorbs radiation from the sun like a black car on a hot day and that melts the sediment down into the ice so it creates a little tiny meltwater pocket they can be the size of a jam jar they can be bigger they can be smaller they normally range i'd say between like 5 and 30 centimeters and that's both in width and depth, I guess. It depends on the environmental conditions they form in.
0: Cool. So these are like little oases for microbes in the ice. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned cyanobacteria. Are there other types of microorganisms you find in these holes?
1: Yeah, one of the reasons people are so interested in them is that there are all kinds of microorganisms in there. It covers sort of the full. Tree of life of microorganisms. There are fungi, there are protists, there are micro animals like tardigrades and rotifers. There are photosynthetic eukaryotic algae. So the more complex cells, as well as the photosynthetic bacterial cells. There's, as I put it, all of the trophic levels are filled. So there's probably a whole food chain network because the cells of different sizes and with different functions. And part of my work has been sort of investigating that I would say the only group that isn't really represented so much is the archaea which is the microbial life that's that's a bit different to bacteria or eukaryotes, but we're not entirely sure if that's because we're not very good at detecting them, mm-hmm. but we do genuinely seem to find not that many types, which is interesting in itself.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So there's this kind of high diversity in the holes, and I'm assuming that's much higher than the biodiversity that's surrounding these holes. So the glaciers themselves, is there a lot of microbial life, or are these hot spots of biodiversity in polar habitats?
1: It depends where you're looking at, because on a lot of glaciers there are these large algae blooms on Mm -hmm. them that can be bright pink or green, and they're called watermelon snow if they're on the snow. Or they are sometimes dark purple glacier algae if they're directly on the ice surface. And we're starting to think that these blooms, they do actually host some biodiversity as well. Previously, it was thought, okay, well, cryoconate holes they have liquid water, they have sediment in, that must be like the epicenter of life on a glacier surface. Now, some people are casting a bit of doubt on that, that maybe on the surrounding surfaces around these blooms, then you have the algae living in a community with fungi and bacteria, but... Personally, I find it hard to believe that the sheer diversity of function and types of microorganisms and the spread of them will ever be as big as in cryoconite holes because you have such a sort of complex community. And another aspect of this is sort of the physical organisation because a colleague of mine and a few other people have found that it's organized these communities. Hmm. So if you have a cryoconite hole with a really deep, fine layer of sediment, then often you get the photosynthetic organisms at the top where they can still access light. And then you have a layer of organisms that don't need light to function. And then right at the bottom, you have organisms that don't even need oxygen. Okay. <laughs> so you have different organisms in different positions. And in other places, some of the cryoconite sediment is formed into granules. So again, you have things that need light on the outside, things that don't on the inside, and then right squeezed in that middle where there's less oxygen, you have a different group all over again. So it's sort of like a whole little world, a whole little ecosystem, and they can be quite independent. They can be frozen over and disconnected from other sources of water and nutrients for quite some time.
0: That's really fascinating. You mentioned earlier on that... They're a little darker in color, so they get a little more solar Mm -hmm. energy, but they're still very cold and they still get frozen over. So what are some adaptations or features of these microbes that help them survive these really cold temperatures?
1: Yeah, that's a big question because different organisms will have different strategies. There are certainly some sort of cold specialists that live in these cryoconite holes, like Polaromonas, which has polar in the name, so you can tell that it is isolated in the cryosphere. There are certain specialists that will have things like antifreeze proteins. There are some organisms that rely heavily on living on a community. Like I said, some of the stickier cyanobacteria, they bind everything together and it means they're part of this warmer, slightly more nutrient-rich cryoconite habitat, and that can be very helpful. Some of the larger eukaryotes are spore formers that are able to be dormant for some time. And I think there is some level of dormancy over winter. But I, I wouldn't want people to think that these are all polar specialist organisms, because at least at the genus level, there are just some really broadly tolerant organisms that you know that, that you can find the same genus, so not quite on the species level, but slightly broader group. You can find them all over the world in different habitats. So, it's a bit of a mix of broadly tough generalists. Okay. And I think that maybe, you know, it's possible that some of the organisms are creating sort of cold resistant substances that are benefiting the whole community.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, I guess there's a variety of ways that these organisms can survive and thrive in the cold, or they're just kind of like, okay, I'm here, it's fine. So studying these cryoconite holes, what are some of the bigger questions you're answering through researching these little
1: environments? One of the caveats I have to give is it depends where you are, because cryoconite okay. holes can look very different in different parts of the world. So, for example, in deepest Antarctica, like the McMurdo Dry Valleys, then You're not going to have loads of big algae blooms, you're going to have white snow, (laughs) ice everywhere, very, very low temperatures. So your cryoconite holes are going to be covered up by ice for pretty much all of the year. So a little bit of light can still get through, but those organisms are quite low light adapted because they're always covered by ice at the top of this hole. But the way it freezes, it's slightly clearer than the, the surrounding ice, which is how you can find them. Whereas In some places in the Arctic or the Alps or the Himalayas, they'll be open to the air. They'll just look like little puddles. And in areas that have particular pollution, this has been studied in India a fair bit, then there can be man-made parts to the material that's in these cryoconite holes. So one of the things that I wanted to study was the similarities and differences between cryoconite holes in the Arctic and in the Antarctic, because If they're quite a different environment in this cryoconite hole, does that mean that there are differences in the ecosystem? And I found that there was. So I think that some of the ongoing work that is happening is now sort of broadening that to, well, what about different times of the year? Or what about including the Alps or the Himalayas? You can get cryoconite holes pretty much anywhere. (laughs) You can get a glacier. So there's a lot of variety and different places that they appear.
0: Okay. I do a lot of microscopy. And I'm mostly in New Jersey, it's a temperate environment, I'm mostly looking at pond water, and I often will be looking at a sample under the microscope. And I see a lot of the same stuff. So I'm assuming when you're comparing these communities in the Arctic versus the Antarctic, I'm sure you're using a variety of tools from Mm -hmm. visual tools to probably genetic or genomic tools, But are you looking at them under the microscope? And if you are, are there obvious differences in the community compositions? Or is that something that you only detect when you start to break it down to genetics and stuff like that?
1: Well, a lot of them are quite difficult to identify under a microscope. There are a lot of the same shapes turning up. One thing you can immediately notice is the cyanobacteria that are bringing the community together because they're quite obvious like I said there are things you can just see with the naked eye like is it a thick silty layer of cryoconite, or is it these little blob granules that are about like a few millimeters wide you can sort of see with your eyes that it's, it's a different community and a different substrate but then we use genetics to be able to get down to a more detailed level because they also, we're talking hundreds of species (laughs) in these cryoconite holes, we think. So you may be able to identify a few or have a look for tardigrades and rotifers. They're a bit bigger because they're micro animals, but really you need to have a genetic or genomic tool set to be able to explore it further.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Last week I spoke with John and who is a geologist. And we talked about the great oxygenation event and how the cyanobacteria of billions of years ago were producing oxygen that ultimately led to our oxygenated atmosphere. But he talked a lot about how before that happened, you know, these bacteria were doing photosynthesis in the oceans. And The oxygen was coming into contact with the iron and it was oxidizing the iron in the oceans and it formed these banded iron formations. And that's how we can look back in the present day and learn about the chemistry and the biology of life billions of years ago. And he touched upon the snowball Earth which I know that you know a lot about. And he talked about how there was another point in the Earth's history where cyanobacteria, again, this time just because they were covered by ice, were producing oxygen by photosynthesis. And again, this is like a roundabout way of asking this question. Mm -hmm. But again, like the oxygen was coming into contact with iron and it formed Mm -hmm. these banded iron formations. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the snowball Earth period of time but from more of a biological perspective because we spoke a lot about the geology Mm. last week
1: yeah another big question about cryoconite is definitely the snowball earthling because there are a group of earth scientists including geologists and paleontologists who were looking at ways that life could have survived through the Snowball Earth period. Because one of the biggest questions that people proposing the Snowball Earth theory got is, okay, if you have 100 million years, where for much of it, the entire Earth was covered with ice, which is from 720 to 635 million years ago, so just before animals evolved, we know microbial life was around then. So how could it possibly have survived through this period? And it's kind of a big challenge to the Snowball Earth theory. And there have been suggestions posed in some research papers. And one of these suggestions was the way life survived in its diversity could have been through cryoconite holes. Because if A large portion or maybe even all of the oceans were frozen over then photosynthesis would have been quite limited in the oceans and that would have had knock-on effects for sexual reproduction and lots of other basics of life that need energy that comes from that primary level of production but we know that On ice surfaces, organisms can survive. On glacier surfaces in the modern day, we have lots of environments, including cryoconite holes. Cryoconite holes can freeze completely, as I said, and the organisms survive. In Antarctica, then a lot of them are frozen for most of the year or almost all of the year, and the organisms still come back to life in the melt season. So basically, it was a theory proposed by these Earth scientists that Cryoconite holes could be a hot spot for life but no one had actually tested this. So that's what my PhD was about at Cardiff University and working with the Natural History Museum and Aberystwyth University as well. We were looking at for my PhD project do these glacier surface ecosystems have the capability to support life in snowball earth conditions? What I was doing first was to just look at what organisms were living there to see if any of them resemble the kinds of things that would have been around on Snowball Earth. We know what kinds of groups would have been around. We know that amoeba would have been around. We know some of the shapes that we find in microbial fossils. We know that cyanobacteria would have been around. So I kind of came up with this list of groups that we think will have evolved by then and tried to see if I could find them in the cryocono holes. And all of them were there. Uh, particularly in Antarctica. And then it was a case of taking this modern con- conite and seeing if I could subject it to snowball Earth conditions and see, can organisms like this hypothetically survive these conditions?
0: And did they?
1: Yeah, they did. So I subjected them to, well, I'll start with what I was imagining snowball Earth life okay. to be like. The Earth would have been plunged into really extreme cold in a snowball Earth scenario, even if in a kind of warmer, slushball Earth scenario, we're still talking extremely low temperatures at the poles. So I'm imagining that most life would have been around the warmer areas in the equator and the tropics. So rather than the 24 hours of light they get in the summer and the 24 hours of darkness they get in the winter at the poles, they would have been in a regular light-dark cycle. And that might have meant a regular freeze-thaw cycle. Now, freezing and thawing repeatedly can be a stress for microorganisms, so I wanted to see if the cryoconite organisms could put up with being frozen and thawed repeatedly for days on end. And I monitored their growth, and they were still producing and consuming oxygen at about the same rate as a community, so they survived the freeze-thaw experiment really well. I also changed their light in that kind of regime, and... What could have happened is that it could have had an impact on the community, starting with the ones that use light, you know, that that need light to photosynthesize. So compared to an Antarctic growth season, where they have light all the time, I was basically taking away 12 hours of their light a day. But still, the community followed the same growth pattern. These experiments only ran for just over a month, so I really couldn't represent years, (laughs) unfortunately, as much as I wish I could. But it was a really good starting point to sort of begin to look into those questions of, okay, people are saying cryoconite communities could survive in snowball earth conditions, but actually can they? And the early evidence looks like they can.
0: That's awesome. That's a really cool experiment. I'm very biased because I study protists. I love eukaryotes. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I know that it's widely understood that prokaryotes like bacteria and archaea are really good at tolerating extreme environmental conditions, whether that's polar or Mm -hmm. hot springs or UV, whatever. But I think it's so fascinating... I study red algae that live in very hot, very, very acidic environments. And you're studying these really cold polar environments that have fluctuating light and all these other stressors. And in both scenarios, it seems like there's plenty of eukaryotic life that persists, which Hmm. I think gives us an interesting glimpse into this snowball earth period you were talking about where eukaryotic life, so at the time really just protists. So I guess maybe fungi I don't know actually when fungi evolved
1: yeah 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 fungi would have been around okay. and like quite a few of the crown groups of protists would have been around yeah um if you think it's sort of like the phyla level then a lot of those groups of microorganisms will have developed already so I was looking for amoebazoa zoa cool. um you know, stromenophiles, like these are the kinds of things that I was looking for to tick off on my yeah, Snowballer yeah. similarity list.
0: Yeah, and so if you're finding all of these groups, and they were able to survive, I mean, and that's so interesting to think about, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, when the planet was frozen over, and how, like you were saying, these crown groups like the Kiwanoflagellates, which, you know, share a common ancestor with Metazoa, which is animals, and I know that before the podcast we talked a little bit about over email about the zagnomamatophycee, which you mm-hmm. know share a common ancestor with land plants. So could you talk a little bit just about the radiation of life that occurred after the planet thawed, I guess?
1: Yeah, so eukaryotes are the big question. Firstly because in Earth's history, prokaryotes, bacteria, and archaea had already been through the mill. (laughs) There had already been some really extreme heating and cooling events in Earth's history before snowball Earth that we know bacteria had survived through. So that's one of the reasons why the big question mark is on eukaryotes, because they have more complex cell systems and sometimes more complex needs for reproduction. So they are kind of seen as more vulnerable. But also, the Cryogenian period, in which Snowball Earth happened, it precedes the Ediacaran, which is where we get the first animal fossils from. And then after that is the Cambrian, where we have the Cambrian explosion, where we have predation and early plants and animals, and everything's kind of exciting to <laughs> natural history um, from like an anthropomorph, yeah you know yeah 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 totally uh, anthropocentric uh, view. So it, you know it's, it is a turning point in evolutionary history. Most of the methods that we have, because what, microfossils are so hard to find and they're so small, so hard to tell any detail from, that often we rely on what we call molecular clocks. I don't know if anyone's talked about them on your podcast before. Not but, yet. Um, molecular clocks are when you look at the DNA of two organisms and you look at the number of differences between them and you use that to put into a model to trace back the average time it takes to make one change in DNA, so then if you have certain changes between one organism and another you can estimate how long ago they diverged from each other so that's one of the main tools that we have to sort of make predictions of when organisms showed up. Some people think that the first metazoa, the first animals, might have evolved before or even during Snowball Earth it's very debatable these would have looked like demo sponges as I think is still kind of the consensus And so whether it was just before, during or after snowball Earth, then it was a turning point in evolution this period. So we need to show that eukaryotes not only survived through snowball Earth, but they did to such an extent that they could proliferate. Some people think that maybe the extinction that happened during snowbirth because of the cold and the sort of little pockets where lots of genes were being shared may have driven evolution, but it's hard to say that we have any sort of proof of that. It's it, There's a lot of theories, and it, it still sort of feels like it's in its infancy as a area of study.
0: Okay. Yeah, I could see how a lot of really big questions are coming out of that period of time. Where do you see this area of research going in the future then to answer those questions? Or are there any other things about polar microbial communities that you're hoping to answer in the near future?
1: I think that something that has been understudied about cryoconite in regards to snowball Earth is cryoconite has to come from somewhere and Mm -hmm. it has to go somewhere. These systems don't exist in isolation. Cryoconite appears from existing cells and sediment and communities that are blown or washed onto the glacier and sit there and form into these small holes. So a working snowball Earth model has to account for where enough material would come from that it would be able to be sustainable with a gene pool. So, you know, it's either big enough or had enough continually fed in that it would be sustainable over (laughs) millions of years' time scale and what will happen to those organisms when the cryoconite hole melts because if the cryoconite hole melts and then it ends up in the sea those would have to be tolerant microorganisms that could deal with salty water as well as fresh melt water i think that cryoconite holes as much as they can and are isolated for some time in some areas of the world where it's really cold and they're just sort of frozen in they don't exist as an ecosystem in isolation I think I mentioned to you before we are doing this session that one of my field trips that I undertook was was kind of to explore that a little bit. I went to Sydney Island, which is off the Antarctic Peninsula, because in a very small area, sort of. The island itself is only a few kilometers across, but there's an ice cap. And so in a really small area, there are cryoconite holes, there are streams, there are ponds. Everything's really connected and really dynamic. It's always changing with the weather. So I wanted to see what was in all these really localized habitats, how they might be connected to each other and how the ecosystem might change when one environment runs into another.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. Now that we talked about eukaryotes before, I'm going to pivot back to prokaryotes because I think the episode last week, I think generated some interest in cyanobacteria. You know, we we talked last week about ancient cyanobacteria, like the first cyanobacteria. And I was wondering Mm. if you could talk a little bit about present day cyanobacteria, which could be, you know, 700 million years ago until now, (laughs) and maybe talk a little bit about their role in the ecosystem and their role in these communities that you're studying.
1: Yes, cyanobacteria as the photosynthetic prokaryote, they are the bottom of the food chain a lot of the time, and they're this you know fundamental source of energy. However, they're also a source of structure. Like I said, they are sticky. I didn't really explain that, but a lot of it's because the cyanobacteria in cryoconite is often filament-forming cyanobacteria. Mm-hmm like some Nostoc, they form long filaments that can sort of bind the communities together. And they create extracellular substances that further adhere cells and material to each other. So they have quite a structural role, as well as a role of putting energy into the system. I found from my pole-to-pole comparison I talked about earlier of are these open, more sort of melty interconnected cryoconite holes in the arctic different ecosystems to the closed ice covered cryoconite holes of the antarctic well one of the differences i found was which cyanobacteria are in high abundance and in a high number of cryoconite holes so in the arctic it was scytonema and nostoc whereas in the antarctic it was coming siphon and tyconema Now, I'm not 100% sure about these assignments still, because cyanobacteria are very difficult to assign using the 16S barcode gene, which is what we use to assign them. But we can be confident that they are different cyanobacteria that are making up part of the core group in the Arctic versus the Antarctic, which I think is interesting. So, you know, is that just because they happen to be there and they're, they're geographically really far apart? Or is it because of something about the environmental condition that's selecting against one or the other?
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. And regardless, it seems like they have to kind of form the basis of these communities wherever there's ice.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, you have some areas that are more eukaryotic algae bloom, Mm -hmm. but cyanobacteria, I, I, I think, you know, if you're imagining a polar landscape, you're not getting many plants at all. Like there are some exceptions, like balls of moss or very, very small vascular plants. But in general, in the cryosphere, especially the further into cold areas you get, it's not like you have a food web that that you would normally expect. You know, there's not sort of plants that are grazed on by things. The cyanobacteria and the eukaryotic algae are really fundamental in providing energy to all life there.
0: Cool. In that vein there aren't as many like and and I'm this is me being very ignorant because I know nothing about animals but I guess Antarctica what they have penguins is that what what's what are the animals like the big animals in Antarctica uh, yeah so <laughs> mammals, yeah, um, mammals and birds
1: <laughs> yeah mammals and birds wise then Antarctica does have a lot of penguins okay I mean, mostly around the coast, but but a lot, a lot of penguins and several different species of penguins. And then there are also seals. So there are the southern elephant seals, which are the giants of Antarctica. Okay. And there are fur seals, weddell seals. There is all kind of diversity of seals. There is a lot of really interesting marine life. Because the Antarctic waters are very cold and oxygenated, you tend to get... This really interesting ecosystem, a lot of animals grow quite big (laughs) because of the highly oxygenated waters. There are lots of things like squid and crabs and loads of jellyfish and fish that are really interesting. Lots of whales. I saw so many whales, which was amazing. (laughs) The microorganisms in the sea are are feeding a really significant food chain. There are studies going on about uh, how much carbon from the glacier is contributing to wider ecosystems as well.
0: Yeah, I guess I wasn't thinking about how many different animals there are down there. I just, in my head, I'm like, (laughs) microbes, microbes, there's no animals. But because I was thinking the the microbial community starts from the primary producers, and then there are some of these microscopic animals that get to graze Mm -hmm. on the photosynthetic microbes. So it's like this little microcosm that goes from prokaryotes or tiny eukaryotic algae to animals. But then in the same area, there's also the real food web we always think of that goes from microbes to giant animals.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting thinking about the connections and barriers between the ice, which is basically freshwater, and the marine environment, which most of the animals depend on. It's kind of like different worlds. Yeah. And I think the studies that are looking at the interconnection between those two things are quite interesting. Like some people are looking at how much cryoconite is flushed into fjords in the Arctic and and the impact that has.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I have some questions about doing fieldwork in (laughs) Antarctica or in the Arctic. (laughs) So what are your favorite parts of it and what are some challenges?
1: My favorite parts probably are the wildlife. I mean, the wildlife is incredible Mm -hmm. and it's just so different to what I would normally see in the UK. I think that my overwhelming impression of being Antarctica is that, okay, I'm in their habitat (laughs) and they know this. You know, you're supposed to keep a really safe distance between you and a wild animal, both for your own safety and so you're not disturbing them. But penguins will just sit there or run up to you (laughs) (coughs) And you know, sometimes it's a bit of a bit difficult to avoid them because you are in their habitat. And the same goes for elephant seals and, and fur seals. You're very much in their world. And yeah, that's really cool. It's a lot of responsibility. And particularly if you're in the Arctic, because there are polar bears yeah. there, which are very dangerous. So that's something that you always have to be very mindful of, but it's really exciting. I do like working in the Arctic because. I think that I feel a bit more connected to it being from the Northern Hemisphere, mm-hmm. and you know, the seas of the UK are fed by Northern waters. And there are Indigenous communities there and Norwegians who have lived there for a really long time who kind of can tell you all about it. And they're really in touch with the land and the history. Whereas Antarctica is sort of somewhere that we turn up. Like, countries from all around the world, you know, turn up and we're in this sort of quite alien landscape just trying to do our best.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you really can't get much further from the UK if you're going to Antarctica. That's so far away.
1: Yeah. And when I was there, then it was February to March 2020 okay good I was gonna ask you about this okay so I
0: saw I watched the video of you of you talking about being stranded there and that was gonna be my
1: next question (laughs) yeah so we did get a bit stranded so we traveled down I can't even remember when it was it was January or February we traveled down to Antarctica And I went to work on Signy Island for a few weeks after stopping off on the main peninsula at Rothera Research Station. And then we started getting news of COVID while we were on Signy Island. And it was very difficult organising travel back, to put it mildly, because countries were closing their borders and you can't fly directly from the Falklands or, or anywhere in Antarctica to the UK you have to stop off somewhere refuel and it was very everyone was changing their rules and yeah. no one really knew like what they needed oh to gosh. worry about and how to test and there was so much uncertainty that eventually they gave up on the idea of flying us all together and asked a cruise ship to take us home so you <laughs> and took we a sailed.
0: cruise ship all the way from antarctica to to where to back to the UK
1: yeah basically. oh my god <laughs> So we were, on, um, <laughs> we were on a British Antarctic survey ship to take us back to Rothera, get some people, get some supplies, and we were going to the Falklands, trying to get a flight, but it became clear that that would be a very difficult thing to do. The Falklands started having cases of COVID, so if we went on land there, we probably would not be allowed back at sea. <laughs> so a passenger ship called the Hebridean Sky very kindly made an agreement with the British Antarctic Survey to take us back and it meant that overall I spent three months at sea <laughs> without oh, really setting a foot on dry God. land because we had a month going back to Rothera and sorting all of that we had a month sort of waiting at the Falklands to get other people on board to wait to hear news about Covid then we had an entire month just traveling back from the Falklands Whoa. to the UK so three months at sea in total. <laughs>
0: that that reminds me of like some sort of apocalypse movie cuz Cause, cause you know if covid ended up being this pandemic that wiped out humanity you guys would have been the safe ones on your boat
1: on your <laughs> yeah. boat you know yeah, what was really weird is that we did still have to do some testing. We did temperature tests and stuff because we'd picked up a doctor from South America. Oh. And so they were saying, well, what? you know, it's and and we and we were having, you know, food delivered on little boats, but oh, <laughs> we, like we didn't know so much about transmission over materials and stuff. So we were still looking out for symptoms and things, which seems ridiculous now but we had to be really careful because if something went wrong in Antarctica you know we didn't have the capacity to have people on ventilators and things so it was kind of scary in a way but we knew that the likelihood of anyone having COVID was was very 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 low and it just sort of became like A lockdown of a house of 100 or so people. We did all the same stuff that you guys did. We watched a load of Disney movies. We did a load of exercise videos. I'm sure it was all very familiar, but just with a group of a mix of scientists, construction workers, polar station managers, and cruise ship crew in
0: some ways that sounds so fun. I almost feel like it sounds like the makings of a new reality show or something. Like it sounds fun. But then in other ways, you know, because when COVID first happened, we were all so afraid. Like I felt so locked down just being in my apartment. But if I needed to go to a hospital, I could go to a hospital. I guess maybe not though, because they were pretty, pretty full and overwhelmed. But still, like, I guess being on a boat knowing that you don't have COVID is one thing, but being on a boat being worried that someone has COVID during this, new pandemic must have been I don't know that that would have mentally messed me up a little bit I
1: think yeah it was quite mentally challenging but like I said we were we're kept informed by the British Antarctic Survey we were like doing everything that we could to make sure that there was no way we could get COVID so we were pretty (laughs) pretty confident and we were so far away from everyone else and after a while we were there for so long it was interesting because in a lot of ways, we were with sort of pseudo colleagues. You know, we were in yeah. lockdown with people we've been working with and some people who we didn't even really know. But, you know, in another way, we had company when a lot of people didn't. I mean, my partner was in my old flat on her own. <laughs> and I say, oh, I don't know which one of us had, has it oh. worse. And she goes, I had it worse. Ah. I had it worse. <laughs> Yeah. We didn't I mean, have very good internet. Um, so sometimes we were sort of, I'd get up at four in the morning to call my partner so I wouldn't be, you know, using too much bandwidth and stuff. Wow. It was a bit surreal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that is a good point of being on the ship kind of with your colleagues. Although, I mean, I could edit this out, but I always hear crazy stuff goes on at sea with scientists and their colleagues.
1: <laughs> well, but I, I've heard some. On behalf of, of the British Antarctic stories. Survey, I will not comment. <laughs> because they are like a civil institutions. So. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, no, we were we were pretty well, I mean, like we were pretty well behaved because we had to all put up with each other for, a, you know, a yeah. long time. So everyone was really nice and supportive and the crew were fantastic. You know, they let us play their games with them. We did bingo and karaoke That's and fine. stuff to try and keep ourselves together. We did a crossing the equator ceremony, which was really sweet. Oh. We all got certificates for crossing the equator, huh. which is like an old Navy tradition. so yeah I think that it was great that there were so many supportive people who had a really good attitude because it was definitely very difficult but we were watching dolphins when other people (laughs) were in quite awful conditions so it's weird to reflect on I I really think that that it's very strange but in some ways we were were quite fortunate
0: yeah that's such a unique experience and I'm sure not a lot of people can say they did a three-month cruise. That's the longest (laughs) one I've heard of.
1: Yeah, there were were ex-Navy people and people who worked in fisheries who were saying, oh, no, we would never do this because normally on a ship you stop every opportunity that you have. (laughs) And we we stopped as as least as we possibly could and we weren't allowed to go on land. So it was a really unusually long time to be on a ship. I think that for the people who got seasickness, they would probably have a different... That would be me, that would be me.
0: I get, like, I used to never get seasick, and then I started of get it bad. If I was on a boat for three months, I'd probably die. I don't know. (laughs) But, so, you went on this research trip, and then you were on Mm. this boat because of the lockdown. Like, did you ship your samples back, or did you have samples on this cruise ship?
1: (laughs) My samples stayed on the British Antarctic Survey's ship, the James Clark Ross. And they were kept in the freezer and they were very well taken care of. Ooh. I'd sort of labelled them with 50 stickers because I, I was so worried about leaving them. You know, normally I would be on the same boat as them mm. and then, you know, I'd sort of see them off, get on a plane or whatever. But yeah, they were very well taken care of. But then I went back to Wales, which had different COVID rules to England. So there was sort of a little bit of coordination oh, to actually wow. get them to me. And it was like, oh, my precious samples. Yeah. Like I traveled so far and so long for these samples. Yeah. And at that um, point, you couldn't but, just yeah. go
0: back. I mean, it's it's hard to get there in the first place. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It there's a lot of pressure. One thing I will say about working in on field samples in the polar regions is that there's a lot of pressure on your field season. Like the job I do now at Bristol, where I don't work on cryoconite so much anymore. I work on the algae that lives on the ice surface. Ooh. There's a lot of pressure on that field work because the algae, you can't grow them in the lab. You have we are really aiming to study them in their environment and not disturbing them. It means that you're working the whole year to get ready for, you know, just two to four weeks of field work and everything hinges on that. So it can be a bit of a high stress, high pressure job in that way. And it was kind of like that going to Sydney Island that, you know, I ended up traveling for over three months for five weeks. one And there was a lot of pressure then to use those samples really well. And, yeah, yeah, fortunately, I was able to look at their genetic composition to get a picture of the ecosystem and, like I said, compare these different habitats to see the similarities and differences about them. Because then, you know, I could get a picture of during climate change, not just in the past in Snowball Earth, but in the modern day, you know, if more cryoconite holes are going to melt into streams, is the whole ecosystem going to change? You know, mm-hmm. sort of think about what the knock-on effect of that can be. So, yeah, it's... Uh, a lot of pressure on field work but it's a good feeling when something good comes out of it
0: (laughs) yeah I'm glad it all worked out considering all the circumstances in the world at the time I mean it's amazing that it all worked out when you were able to finish up I guess that was your PhD
1: it was yeah yeah Yeah. wow so yeah I managed to sort of scrape it together and and finish that um yeah
0: wow that's an interesting story I'm sure you'll be telling that story for the rest of your life Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, probably.
0: before we wrap up is there anything else that you want to talk about today
1: well I mean (laughs) there's probably a lot of things I could think of yeah you know thank you for your interest in my work there's sort of different sides to polar science there's the side of just understanding life and evolution and different capabilities of planets and organisms better than there's the modern climate change side of things and it's the poles are these really fragile vulnerable ecosystems and it will have knock-on effects of the world but before then the indigenous communities will be really impacted by a lot of this there will be changes to sort of socio-politics in the arctic So I think that we need to keep having a spotlight on the polar regions, particularly the Arctic. And something that people don't really think about is that the Alpine and Himalayan glaciers, they provide water to a huge number of people. And people live around these places. People live and are reliant on glaciers in the U.S. and Canada, the Alps, all over the world. So it's not just, you know, polar bears. I think people sometimes picture polar science, and they picture a completely empty landscape that's, you know, white, and it's alien. And I have talked about some of the things like that. But, you know, a lot of the cryosphere has really material impacts on people's lives and on a wide range of animals, not just penguins and polar bears. So that's kind of something that I like to make sure I say about polar science and um, in the UK right now, we have a lot of strikes at universities because it's not just about pay, it's about working conditions and it's about equality in the workplace. And for a lot of us who have projects that depend on field work, we just wanna be in work. We're like rushing to get loads of stuff done. We want to be doing our research and it's really difficult when you have an unstable position because of the institutions or because of the politics of the country where you work. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what's on my mind at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, I think those are really important issues. And I think with the climate injustice issue, you know, it's, it's so sad because that's it's only getting worse and it's only getting compounded by things that people who aren't living in polar regions or who aren't living in equatorial islands are doing to the rest of them. Mm-hmm. I just had to present something. For this journal club i'm in about edible algae and just like the history of edible seaweeds and it just made me think a lot about how indigenous communities and people all around the world historically going back thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years were making use of some of our natural resources in ways that people in the western world are are just capitalizing on now and it's it's just sad Mm -hmm. there's all this indigenous wisdom and knowledge that people I don't think appreciate and I'm glad that you brought it up
1: it's sometimes our institutions aren't really set up for you know we, we can be quite insular like we produce papers that only people in a very specific area can yeah. understand and they're often focused on quite small areas and there are fewer projects kind of bringing things together to make material impacts so we've got to just keep Stepping back a bit, make some bridges between politicians, companies, the public, most importantly, And the people who are going to be most impacted or impacted first by the issues that we're talking about. And since I was doing a PhD and very head stuck in books and in my own project, it was quite hard to do that. So, you know, sometimes I talk about it as a reminder for myself to try and put into practice making links so that our science actually does some good in the world which is something doesn't always immediately happen when you're studying what happened 650 million years ago. Yeah, <laughs> but everything yeah. ties together. You just have to make it. You have to put the effort in, you know, to talk to other scientists and to talk to the public. And, no, that's
0: a good point. You know, get
1: get something Uh, For the greater good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, of course, of course. And I think, you know, that's something a lot of us care about. It's a shame that people always have to go on strike to just get fair working conditions. You know, no one's asking for extravagant working conditions. And I really hope that the people in power in these institutions end up waking up and listening and that this works out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's kind of a micro scale of, you know, all of the issues we were talking about is that the resources are there we have a yeah. lot of resources on our planet and i'm not saying that there's never resource scarcity of anything ever but in general <laughs> we have a lot of resources and the distribution is off the wastefulness is a problem yeah. you know we need better systems to tread more lightly on the earth and put vulnerable people first and so you know that's something that i don't ever want to lose sight of when i'm working in a very vulnerable area of the world. And, you know, hopefully, uh, something good that is mutually beneficial will come out of these strike deals. And then we will be in a more stable place to be able to dedicate more of our energy to doing good things, because that's what we want to do.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think science gets politicized a lot, sometimes for good reason, and sometimes by bad actors. But I think what you're saying is what a lot of scientists are feeling. And I think that a lot of us have our hearts in the right place. And I hope, yeah, I hope that things that things change for the better. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) jazz, this has been such a cool conversation today. Um, if listeners want to follow your work, where can they find you online?
1: They can find me at jazz.science on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Cool. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on today. I had a great time.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. It was really great. And yeah, good luck with all of your episodes of the podcast. I'm so glad that people are talking about this stuff.
0: Yeah, i i, I think I think people are listening to it. We'll see, but yeah, <laughs> thank you. Okay, so how crazy is it that Jazz was stuck in Antarctica during the first COVID lockdowns, and it took them three months at sea at sea to get back home? You see, scientists sometimes have to deal with crazy situations to do our research, but I'm glad they got their microbes back to the lab after all of that. I found Jazz's research to be so interesting, and like I had said, I had no idea of what a cryoconate hole was before we connected, and I can't wait to see what other research comes out of this field. I also thought Jazz's words about climate impacts on indigenous communities and issues of workers' rights were both very poignant and things we need to increasingly be aware of as things on our planet continue to shift climatologically and politically, and now for today's, a cool microscopic or small thing I saw this week, where I highlight the work of others on social media. At co underscore micro on Instagram shared some beautiful licmophora diatoms from Sagami Bay in Japan. These unicellular organisms are always beautiful in their geometry, but licmophora are often stocked and colonies of cells grow and arrange themselves into beautiful fan shapes that look like golden bouquets of flowers. Definitely go check out these photos. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes and the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.